I could hear that again and again. They know some words you can't even pronounce. That's what I told them earlier. What are you nervous about? The adults can't even say these words. Before we begin our sermon time together this morning, I just need to give you a couple of updates. Can we do that real quickly? And those of you who are guests this morning, welcome to this place. And it's a little bit unusual Sabbath for us since it's our family's last Sabbath in the sanctuary. Next week, we'll be with the group that's out at Death Valley. There's about 150 people, I heard, going to Death Valley next weekend. Now I'm one of them. Uh, So next weekend uh, in this sanctuary, one of our co-head elders, Dan Jung, will be sharing a message with you. It will also be the first time you hear this organ played. I'm a little covetous of that. I know Dustin mentioned the organ earlier. Uh, I don't know if you all know the story of the organ. You'll hear it more completely next week. What you need to know is you're looking at an instrument that's $135,000 worth of good music, if, um, well, if someone besides me plays it, it's good music, and we bought this for $85,000. Yes. It came out of someone's home in Oxnard, California. They had had it for about a year. I consider this a, a God story, and Dan will share it with you next week. Why it matters to us is because we've paid for about 40% of it. One of the beautiful blessings of the Calamesa Church, in the years that I have been with you, you have taken care of the needs of this church. Not only did you do that roof without borrowing money from anybody, a quarter of a million dollars you took care of, but just, I think we can say every air conditioning in the entire facility has been replaced since I've been here. Every uh, appliance has broken down and been replaced, and the list just goes and goes like that. Now, the organ is one of the last things. That was a 20-year-old organ we moved out last week, and some of you heard the story that when the movers came, the organ decided its 20 years was over and it would not play, and we've sold it to another church. Um, Mike, Mike Philman thought that that was rather fitting. If the organ couldn't be here, it's not going to be anywhere. We found out it was a burnt-out um, transistor in the back. We were a little curious if all of the Christmas explosions had something to do with it. Um, we're repairing it this week, and it's being, it'll be in working condition for the Filipino church in Redlands. $49,000 we need to do to finish this organ. Would you start today... In today's offering, if every family put in $30 for the next three months, now come on, most of us can do that and a lot more. If we all just put in $30 for three months, we're done. We borrowed from ourselves, by the way, to buy the organ, so we need to pay ourselves back. It's a fund dedicated for expansion when we're ready to do that. So I'm asking you today to think and pray about it, not only when today's offering comes, but as the weeks roll by, so this can be paid for very quickly. Uh, It's going to be beautiful next week when you hear uh, Mike play it for the first time. It's plugged in, actually. It's going to be voiced this week. Uh, If someone wanted to play it today, they could, but as it turns out, everybody's kind of waiting for Mike to be the first one. So next week will be the week. I also want to let you know that um, because of the transition, because we're taking this other assignment across town, well, we've thought of a couple of things, actually. One is dual campuses. Don't you like that idea? we just be a two-campus church? I like that idea. You can be La Sierra East, and they can be Calamesa West, 
It's a good name for them. They should try it for a few months and see if they like it. And we just put jumbotron screens, and we can still all be together. We, we like that idea. But since no one else has caught on at the conference office, uh, the church board did select a search committee. And that process will begin this Sunday night. I am just so grateful that it's moved so quickly that nine people, including youth and two young adults and all spectrums of leaders and ages, will make up this search committee along with your pastoral staff. The work begins tomorrow night. Dr. Sandy Roberts, our conference secretary, will be present with our search committee. They will begin. There is a little place on the website if you'd like to um, say something to the search committee, but you'll notice... Um, in your bulletin from the weeks coming out and, and verbal reports you'll get from the search committee as they make their progress. You need to know that when we made this announcement the last Sabbath of January, the timing of all of that was you know, down to the minutes on the clock so that both churches would announce at the same time. While we were announcing and mourning and weeping out here, and that church was having a little different response, um, they were also praying for us that day on the platform. They prayed for us. And the search process in particular. So I want you to know that. And I, I would ask you now to keep that uh, search process in your prayer life for these upcoming weeks. Would you do that? So, we're going to be in James chapter 2 this morning. If I show you this image on the screen, it looks a little bit like a third grade Bible study lesson. Faith without is, you all passed third grade. If you've been raised Christian, you know this verse, right? I was thinking this morning how interesting it would be to get to interact, and that's one of the downfalls of sermons is it's so one-directional. To interact would be interesting to me. When you hear that phrase, what does it mean to you and what has it meant to you growing up Christian, growing up maybe even Adventist Christian, I thought it would be fun to interact. And then I got to thinking, since it's our last Sabbath in this church, I thought I would just have a conversation with my husband. That You rarely get to see him up front. He's usually up in the projection running things. Wouldn't it be nice if we let him talk? So here you go, Kirby. And I'll give him a stool so we can look a little more eye-to-eye. I, I know this is hard for you because you're a little shy and your, your opinions don't come so quickly and you're a quiet guy. There's a reason you put me up there. <laughs> so it'll be okay if we interact for a few minutes on this question? Not sure how you're going to do this and run projection at the same time. I'm very eager to see... I wrote that. <laughs> That's good. Okay. There is a reason we keep him up there. <laughs> so here's the question. You know, it's the question I'd, I'd like to hear many people respond to. Faith without works is dead. You grew up Christian. When you think about that phrase, what did it mean to you growing up? Um, yeah, I, I also am fifth generation Adventist and um, grew up in the Portland area. And I can recall very vividly the concept of faith versus works. And when I would hear that phrase, one of the things that comes to mind is soul winning. And partially growing up uh, doing in-gathering and striving hard to win the Jasper Wayne Award. 
if any of you remember that. And also on our bulletins, or I should say bulletins, our tithe envelopes that would have how many pieces of clothing have you donated? How many um, tracts have you given out? How many baptisms or how many Bible studies have you have led in baptism? So for me, it was about soul winning. And when I think of the works part, that's what comes to mind. So, see, for, for me, works was, was very different. But for him, works had to do with kingdom good, uh, bringing other people into God's kingdom. You were in Vancouver. I was in Vancouver. <laughs> was that too far from Portland or what? <laughs> I don't need to say anything. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> oh, I'm just catching on slowly. <laughs> I think that was Oregon is superior to Washington State, if I just heard correctly. But, I didn't say anything. Yeah, okay. And we have these conversations all the time at home about what these Bible passages might mean. For, him, for you, works meant bringing souls into the kingdom. What does the faith part mean? Faith without works. What's the faith? Um, that's changed for me over time. I think when I was young, faith was more the blind faith. And so there, there was a part of me that thought I just needed to trust and I needed to work. And I think the older I got, the more I recognized that the faith was a relationship. It was not just blind faith. And so for me, it would be faith with evidence. And we probably all have heard stories of, you know, if you were in a tree and you fell back into your father's arms, you were not worried because there was evidence that he would catch you. If he dropped you several times, you might not have that same faith in him. So for me, the faith was relationship um, as I grew up. And I think that's where, by the time I got to college, it was a relationship, and then there was also the soul-winning part. So could I summarize the, the faith, it, faith that God will be God? I can't tell you no. <laughs> you can. You could try. Actually, that would be very good. Faith is God, God being is God. God. Yeah. Okay, that's the faith part. What about today? You know, um, I mean, you work at an Adventist institution, and you hear all this church talk from me all the time. What do you think uh, Adventist Christians think of with this text today? And do we, is it troubling us, or we've got this figured out? I would think, well, from my perspective, all the way through college, I would say not just now, but if I go back even through my college years, it, it's always troubled me how I see people struggle with different aspects of it. And I think even in college, uh, watching students struggle with faith versus works. And even to, to this day, I don't feel like we've grown very much, from my perspective, in how we view that. Uh, we've heard that faith is enough, but we don't really believe that that there has to be a works that goes with it from my perspective. And then how much works? We also have heard that you can't get to heaven by working your way to heaven. So the balance between the two is the conflict I see, the struggle. How much faith is enough? How much works is enough? Am I doing enough to get in heaven? My mom still struggles with that when mm -hmm. we talk on the phone. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I've done enough. Am I good enough mm -hmm. to make it? So to me, that's the conflict. How much faith? How much works? So there is still an issue. Good. Thanks for talking about it. Is there anything else you need to get off your chest before you go? You <laughs> Extremely risky that was. Faith without works is dead. The first time Christians struggled with that was not James chapter 2 when we read it today. 
Not even with Jesus, you know, walking around Palestine. In fact, the concept and the understanding what that means, faith and works and how they work together, is all throughout our Bible back from the beginning with the patriarchs. It's a concept that's never gone away. Woven through your scripture. James chapter 2, there's a Bible in front of you this morning. If you'd like to follow along, what is interesting in particular with this letter, this writing, these are now people attempting to follow after Christ maybe 100 years after Jesus is gone. People attempting to follow Christ when they're scattered far out of Jerusalem in little faithful communities, aliens, exiles, really. People, by the way, who don't have a Bible like we have. They don't have an official doctrine or creed from a church. There's not one form of Judaism that's practiced. There's not, there's not even an official Christianity yet. Faith without works is dead. They're trying to understand in a context that's so different from ours today. We open the Bible. What about for them? James chapter 2, we'll begin with verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if a person claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about those physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, is not a, if it's not accompanied by action, it is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I'll have the deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe there is one God. Good. Even demons believe that and shudder. So the argument unfolds now in James chapter 2. What good is faith, which I'll call conviction and belief, what good is it if it's not accompanied by action? Good for you, you believe in one God. Good for you, you have orthodox true truth. Even the demons can have that, the text says. Good for you, I read goody for you, actually. The demons can do what you say you can do. The author is going to go on now and pull some proof. Abraham, Rahab. Abraham, the first monotheist in the Bible, orthodox faith, true truth, believes in the one God just like the demons. Rahab, if you remember, she sat on top of the roof, gave that theology lesson to the Israelite spies about their God. The author will pull these two examples of proof for the argument he's building. Verse 20. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Then fine. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Verse 26, faith without deeds is dead. I actually think the entire passage is very straightforward and fairly practical if it were not for that verse 24 just sitting in there worming around. 
Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. This is the confusion of the faith and the works conversation over the centuries in the Christian church. God's good work, maybe not quite enough to justify. So I'll add a little bit to it. God, who redeems and saves and makes us whole, that's justification. Maybe we need to do as the Bible says and work a little of our own salvation out. Maybe we need to do as the early church fathers said, do the work, the workings of the work of faith. God's work plus a little bit of mine. The text seems to just move us that direction. Yet two weeks ago, just two weeks ago, standing here, I said to you, we're saved by faith alone. That means alone. It couldn't be that plus anything else. Alone means alone. And many of you said, amen. Well, what would you like to do with verse 24 then? Sticking out at us there. There are a cluster of words, works, and deeds, and justification, and faith, and righteousness. It's a a cluster of those Christian words that sometimes get us confused, and different Bible authors use them different ways, those Christian words. Have you heard that old, old story about a little boy chasing a mouse around the house and didn't know the pastor had come for a visit and brings the mouse into the house by the tail? He says, Mom, Mom, look, look, look. I hit it over the head with the broom. I threw it up alongside the staircase, and then I stepped on it. And he looks up and sees the pastor there, and then the little boy says, And then the Lord called him home to heaven above. (laughs) Christian words, Christian phrases, faith and works and righteousness and justification. Different Bible authors use them different ways, and that's part of our challenge. If we reach back to a couple of weeks ago and take some of our own principles, it helps us with this little verse 24 this morning. Read the text in context. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Well, all right, let's try that. Often when we hear about faith and works, it's the Apostle Paul who is writing. So I'm moving over to Romans. I'm just going to give you a smattering of verses. When you put them all together, look at how Paul, what Paul says about faith and works. Romans 3 verse 20, therefore no one will be declared righteous in the sight of God by observing the law. Romans 3 22, the righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Romans 3 28, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Romans 5 1, therefore since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Bible goes on and on in Galatians and in Ephesians chapter 2. You've been saved by faith, not through any good works of your own. Over and over again, usually, when Paul is addressing this topic, the situation involves people who are attempting to follow after this Christ person in their new environments, and maybe not all of them were Jewish first. And what do they do with the Jewish law? Do we have to come to the Jewish law first? Do we need to be circumcised before we come to Jesus? And when Paul uses the word law, it's not always the same law. But usually, Paul points people straight to the cross and says, there is nothing you can do, no Jewish law, no Ten Commandments, no Torah, nothing you can do that could possibly save you like the cross of Jesus. That's Paul. That's faith. That's the works issue they were having. Now take that understanding with us and move back to James. James. 
Because in James, while the author there uses some of the same language Paul uses, they're building different arguments, going different directions for very different situations. For James, in the book of James, I specifically chose this morning that we would read out of the New International Version. It's the King James Version that uses the works word that Paul uses. But in the New International, we've been reading this morning, it uses the word deeds. That Greek word can also be translated as deeds. Faith without deeds are dead. And I think that helps us get at the argument James would like to build. Because James would like to say that out of your belief and your convictions and your righteous status with God, deeds will come. Deeds will be evident. James would like to not talk about the cross of Jesus that saves us, but the deeds of Jesus building up to the cross, the mercy ministry of Jesus, the deeds and acts. And I think we get some help if you move back up to the top, top of James chapter 2, and we're not going to take time today to read the whole chapter, but, but I ask you to do that, sometimes sitting in quiet, because the chapter begins with a question Um, that says, my brothers and sisters, have you not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ? Which I take to be not faith in Jesus' saving acts, but have you not the faith of Jesus, the faith of Jesus in God's good plan to move around the powerless in the world? Have you not that kind of faith that, that Jesus gave evidence of in the world as he moved among people who needed his help? This is the focus of James. The faith of Jesus in God's plan So that Jesus began to embody the good acts of God among the powerless in the world. The physically poor, the hungry, the naked, the ones on the outside. You cannot repeat pious phrases like, go in peace, if you've not clothed and fed and ministered to that person. The faith of Jesus that moves, the faith of Jesus that touches, the faith of Jesus that heals, the the faith of Jesus that feeds and clothes, yes, the faith of Jesus that advocates for the powerless in the world. Those are the deeds James, I believe, is talking about. And so he says, you show me those deeds and I'll show you you're looking at a justified person. (laughs) Because this is how justified people move about in the world. This is how saved, redeemed people act. You can tell if you've come across a justified person, not only because of what they believe, because of their true truth, but because they move around the world embodying the mercy of Jesus. That's what I believe is the understanding of James 2:24. Faith without deeds is dead. It's very much like buying a new organ, plugging it into the wall, and then let's just leave it there and look at it. Let's just not play it. It's beautiful. If we did play it in worship, my, it would inspire us. It would draw us closer to God. It would, the beauty of the instrument, what this thing will be able to do, actual sounds of pipe organs from around the world have been recorded, and those are the sounds that will come out of these stops when Mike plays it next week. It'll be absolutely moving. It'll probably convict many of you, inspire you to something else and more and greater, but, you know, instead of doing that, let's just leave it plugged in. We'll walk in week after week and look at our beautiful organ and we'll dust it and we'll let the community come so they can see the Calamesa Adventist Church got a Rogers organ. We just won't play it. We'll just look at it. 
Faith without deeds is a lot like buying a Rogers organ and plugging it in and never opening the console and experiencing it. It is a defining concept for God's covenant people. We can state it more strongly, faith without deeds are dead. Well, we could state it more strongly, faith without justified people willing to act in the world means death for the powerless people of the world. Faith without justified people willing to act is not faith at all. It is a waste of time, and we might as well close the church doors today, friends. That's what it means when it says it's dead. Sometimes in religious communities, we get fairly engaged with our minds. And for Adventist Christians, it's been very significant for us from the earliest years to seek true truth, hoping it will lead us to the actions that are pleasing to God. And it is helpful for me to remember that it's embedded in the DNA of my Adventist Christianity to seek true truth, to engage my mind, to know what I know and believe what I believe with conviction. We came out of faith groups with an understanding of Scripture that we thought was more valid and more urgent Denomination founded on believing what is right, believing what is more right. It's part of our DNA. Right belief hopefully leads us to right action, and I'll tell you growing up in the church, as an Adventist Christian in the church, for me, right action was fairly individual. I will keep the Sabbath. I will study my Bible. I will pray. I will work really hard not to say bad words and not to steal and not to kill, and that one was a little easier, and and not to treat people badly, and then I'll do it all over again, and hopefully, hopefully, when God looks at those deeds, those works... I might be savable in heaven. might be enough. For me growing up, that was my understanding of faith without works is dead. And it completely misses the mercy ministries of Jesus. It completely misses it. I believe it was three years ago when Dr. Bob brought Alan Handysides um, from the General Conference, Dr. Alan Handysides, to Pine Springs Ranch to our retreat weekend. And it's on the calendar again, by the way, April, the last weekend of April this year. I hope you'll plan to attend. By the way, Bob, if, if good deeds could get you into heaven, I have attended every one of those adult meetings for four years. Every one. Dr. Alan Handysides a few years ago, I'll remember forever the illustration he gave. I've repeated it once here. I believe a Sabbath morning devotional when he said, what would happen in the city of Calamasa if you folks decided you were going to close your church up? I know what would happen. People would come. They'd stand on your steps and say, no, not the Calamasa church. No, you can't leave the community. We've depended upon you. He said, they would knock on your doors and say, come back to us, minister to us, don't leave us now, we need you. That's what would happen if your church shut the doors, right? The mercy ministries of Jesus. While we are so busy teaching the next generations, and we should, to think about what is pure and lovely and good, we, while we're busy prioritizing prophecy and teaching them about the end of times and how to live and be ready for the second coming. 
Friends, we must not forget to teach them about our responsibility for deeds in the world. I have spent the last 10 years attempting to take Jesus seriously, and I confess to you that's the part of my Bible I study more vigorously. But after 10 years with Jesus, what is very clear to me is that it is not possible, it is not possible to be in a faith community bearing the name of Jesus, Christians, without a, social, a socially active, worldly faith in the community. I am persuaded that a faith without a serious, regular, patterned approach to the community, for the powerless in the community, a faith that's missing that is blasphemous. That is to take the Lord's name in vain. I, I can't do that any longer. Church cannot be the hope of the world if church refuses to embody hope in the world. It just cannot happen. So I've decided that I've spent enough years worrying about salvation, worrying about heaven's minimum entrance requirements, and while I love thinking about true truth and all of those good theological conversations, sometimes I am learning they displace us from embodying the hope of God in the world. I have spent enough time doing goods and deeds and activities that are absolutely useless. I can't get me into heaven. I hope you know that, too. At our Christmas meal with the seniors this past year, we were getting close to serving time. You know, the staff comes together, and we cook all afternoon, and afternoon, and we have a great, great, great time. Those are some of my most fond memories at this church. This past year, uh, Pastor Ken was looking around, and he asked, you know, is there anything else that needs to get done? It sort of looked like we had everything under control. And I said, you know, we need to squeeze some lemons. We need some lemon juice. Now, I cannot tell you how many lemons, but Ken can because there was nothing to juice them with in the kitchen but his hands. And I know it was a bag of lemons, and I know we needed something like two and a half cups or something of lemon juice. So Ken began to roll the lemons on the counter and then manually squeeze these crazy things while he sat over there and kind of muttered and mammered over the task he'd been given. He squeezed the lemons, and then these pomegranates, Ken, you know, one of them is for garnish for the salad, and the other one, we need to pull the seeds out. And he sat over in that side of the kitchen. I'm not sure if he'd ever seeded pomegranates, but I do know he looked down at his hands, and he's back there muttering about what good this could possibly do. And then the clock begins moving really quick, and it's time to throw the food out on the table, and we all go change and put on our clean clothes, and we come back to the kitchen 15 minutes till start time, and here sits Ken's lemon juice and Ken's pomegranate seeds. And Ken says to me, are those going to get used? <laughs> yes, I said, yeah. And then I realized that the lemon juice was supposed to go in the risotto, and the risotto's already gone out, and it's in the hot plate. And the pomegranate seeds are supposed to go with the salad, and the salad's already out on the serving platters, and there sits Ken's good deeds. <laughs> and they are not, they were not used. There you go. So what? Fire me. 
But Ken feels a lot better if you'll walk around and say, oh, because it's sort of become our standing joke. You know, you, you got any lemons that need to be squeezed? <laughs> I have come to think about my salvation that way. I am done squeezing lemons and peeling pomegranate seeds trying to work myself into heaven because that is useless work. Because it's God's work. And if I am busy worried about that, it's a displacement activity so that I never engage the world. I never embody the hope of Jesus in the world. And I am just becoming more persuaded that the church must embody Jesus and let God worry about salvation, and we would get so much further. We would get so much further. So for the next two years, you will hear your pastoral team talk about plans that, have been, that are, have, have been in the process of birthing for a while now. I will leave, but these plans are active and alive as if I was present. In fact, this means so much to me that when I was interviewing on the other side of town and they asked me about my vision for church and so forth, not only did I want to grab these banners and take that mission statement with me, but, but I asked them, if you don't care about the community around the church and you're not ready to grab onto that task, then I'm probably not the right pastor. Because that's what's going to happen at this church. Isaac is responsible for the community services component. The three-block rule, you'll hear that line or some metamorphosis of that line. We would like to put the map three blocks all the way around the church and know these people for once and for all. We would like to not be just the people who block driveways on Saturday morning, the people who do the great Christmas concert for 30 years in a row. We would like to know these people. Did you know on the other side of our vacant lot that if you go on the U.S. Census Bureau, not one house, several houses living at or below the poverty level? Right here, our neighbors. You'll be invited to participate in the three-block project. We want to know who these people are all the way over to City Hall. You'll be invited to continue with community services. That building stays open every Monday morning. We feed and clothe people. But beyond that, we're attempting to expand it so we have a presence somewhere down on the boulevard for people who are afraid to walk onto a church site, who need recovery groups and all sorts of aid and help, that we might be more effective if we're down on the boulevard somewhere. You'll hear more about that. We've just agreed with the city of Calamesa to allow one acre of our empty land to be used for the Calamesa City Garden. Isn't that great? Now, it met a little hiccup this week, but that's okay. The plan's in place. They came to several people, ended up, we have land that's very central in the city. If we would agree to let them use an acre, their goal is to not only have a place where community comes together and plants food, but that everybody who plants, plants extra, because we intend to feed hungry people in the city. That's the Calamesa Community Garden, and it is now anchored to this church. We hope it'll stay that way. We're continuing our commitment. We've started just recently with the Interfaith Community Food Bank up on Bryant Street at the Catholic Church. Isn't that something? We're partnering with the Catholic Church to feed people in the valley. 1,500 mouths a month you're helping to feed. We're continuing our decision with the House of, uh, de our commitment to the House of Decision in Cherry Valley. We sent them funds from our Christmas offering. Did you know we send Dan Narati out once a week now? He provides free counseling to them. 
We pay his wages to send Dan out one morning a week to see clients at the House of Decision, and we hope to increase our commitment there. And while we focus on these blocks and our zip codes right around the church, there is one away project, the Honduras mission trip you've heard about. These t-shirts, I understand, just came yesterday. It's called Calitan. I, I thought that sounded a little bit like Taliban when they first chose it. <laughs> but I didn't get to vote, so Calitan. That comes from Calamesa. If you turn the back of the shirt over, it explains how they got that name. It comes from Calamesa and Rotan, one of the communities in Honduras that our team will be visiting. Only 30, 33 people are going, but we are all involved in this project, friends. Why, why Honduras? Because Steve Dunbar has been there already for years, because he's got terrific foundation and relationships laid where we can move into this community now and build upon what he's already started and stay for the long haul. That's our one away project. It won't be over once this trip is over this spring. Because faith without works is dead. The pastoral team went two weekends ago on our staff retreat, as I told you. Ahead of time, I told you we were going down to San Diego. We started a couple of years ago uh, taking some food and find, trying to find hungry people and feed them in San Diego. We did it again this year. It was raining that Sabbath. Uh, that was enough to dissuade me. I actually was interested in canceling that part of our retreat time together, except for a, a daughter who said, Really, Mom? Really? You're going to get rained on and they're going to go hungry? Really? And I'm so grateful for the younger generation's friends. Listen to your younger generations. So we went. Not easy to go because there's not a place to park your cars. You end up double parking and the rain is coming down. And we, we, we hit the jackpot in terms of homeless people this time. We went to a tent city area and there were lots of them gathered in circles. You can talk with Isaac uh, and Grace. You can talk with Ken and Lael. You could talk with Dustin and Heidi, Saul and Susie. Talk to me, my family. All of us would tell you a different story of those few minutes in downtown. The street I went on to, uh, when I walked onto the street, there was a, a gentleman who said to me, uh, you know where you are? You, you know where you are. Yeah, I, I think I know where I am. I just want to make sure you know where you are as you look around and various activities are taking place, including an awful lot of drug use on my street. And uh, a, a used dirty needle came flying out the window of a car that was passing by. Yeah, I know where I am. Another, another gentleman listening on the conversation said, well, then you are a Proverbs woman. You are a Proverbs woman. And he began to quote Proverbs to me a little loosely. Another woman looked at me and said, uh, you only feed black people? No, I, I, you, you just came to find the black people. No, she said that to us, Elisa. I said, no, I, we were just told hungry people might be on this street, and we came to feed whoever needed food. Uh-huh. You feed anybody but black people tonight? 
And then another woman standing there when I came up and, you need food, you need water, here's water bottles. She said to me, are you a church person? I am. She takes a step back. She says, church people in the midst, church people in the midst, church people in the midst. And from all around these little huddles, people looked up, church people in the midst, they came Church people in the midst. Faith without works is dead. I want to be church people in the midst. Don't you? Don't you? Then pray for God to give us that courage these next two years. Would you do that? Church people in the midst. May God bless you richly. Amen. There is a wonderful tradition when you read scripture that often took place at times of transition, and it is that of a blessing. And as you leave us, we would like to offer a blessing to you. wait until Kirby gets down here. Thank you for running all over the place today, Kirby. We have very much appreciated you all here. And Chris, these are words mainly for you. Blessed be the God of Chris Oberg, who has poured out his love to the Calamesa Church through her these past four years. And blessed be Chris, who has spent herself without reserve for love of all of us, young and old, who has brought us to a more complete unity in ways we had not known before, who has led us to serve our neighbors in love without the need to count numbers, who has pictured Christ for us in all his beauty. How can we help but love him more? who has nurtured scholarly study of the word, leaving room for unanswered questions, who has taught us the difference between a bug light and a bud light. <laughs> May we always remember to laugh at ourselves. And now, Chris, may the grace of your loving God surround you. May he carry you in his arms through the tragedies you confront. May he continue to gift you with strength of leadership and administration. May he give you, still, words to speak. May he gift you, still, with well-timed silence. May he protect and bless Kirby and Amanda and Lisa, Alisa, and give you time with them, both quality and quantity. May he remind you to protect the margins of your time. May he always give you humans to touch you with love. May he bless you with patience and love for people who have bigoted ideas, but give you impatience with their bigotry. May he bless the La Sierra Church and community through you. 
May he bless the worldwide Seventh-day Adventist Church through you. May the greater community of Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, and atheists receive the outflow of grace of God because he has laid his hand upon you. And may you remember us with fondness and know that we love you. standing for this song. Take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to Thee. Take my hands and let them move at the
just want you to make sure we took up an offering. <laughs> because if it's the last task I do here, I will do that. Because <laughs> the church has to have an offering. Let's pray. So God, make these church people in the midst. Make them secure in their salvation. And then they will be ever only all for thee. Amen.